this evening in our series on the gospel, and in particularly our focus on the death of death and the death of Christ. This evening, however, I wanted to look at a passage that I think is really, it touches the foundation of what it is we're talking about. We're talking about death, and that may seem a bit um, depressing, but really, we're not, we're not talking about death. We're talking about life. In my Bible, and the version of God's Word that I have, the heading above verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 30 says, Choose life. Listen to the word of the Lord. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Let us pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would open your word to us, and by your Holy Spirit that you would teach us Fill our minds with understanding and our hearts with devotion. Help us to understand the meaning of life. Help us to understand the meaning of death. And particularly the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the life that comes to us through that death. We do pray, Father, that in the unfolding of your word we might see light. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 17th century, there's a well-known Presbyterian minister in England by the name of Richard Baxter. His writings are, are popular in Reformed seminaries, as well they should be. But one of the most famous things that he said during a sermon, he said that I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. I remember reading that many years ago when I was in seminary, and I remember it troubling me then, and troubling me ever since, because I understand where he's coming from. He's talking about the urgency with which the preacher preaches the gospel, not knowing that he himself has another day left on this earth. And, and that's the, 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 the gist of what he's saying, and so it... It, it sounds very good, and Reformed pastors have been trained to think in those terms, to preach as a dying man to dying men. But I think as I've 
grown over the years, hopefully, and especially as I've studied this concept of the death of death and the death of Christ, that it seems to me that a believer should not refer to himself as a dying man, but rather as one who, though he may die, yet lives. And though physically we may be wasting way, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. And so, with all due respect for Richard Baxter, I think Moses got it better. I set before you life and death. Choose life. Life is what it is we're talking about. Life, the issue of life, is the foundation and the atmosphere, the full context in which we can even begin to understand the meaning of the death of Christ. So if I, if I ask you, along with myself, to, to seek to understand the meaning of the death of Christ, shouldn't we begin with the meaning of life? How can we understand death if we don't understand life? Biblically, we understand it's, it's what man lost when he sinned in the garden. God said to Adam, in the day that you eat thereof, dying you shall die. And we have been discussing in our study of Genesis on Thursday evenings what that death meant to man spiritually, in his soul, in his body. Life is also what man has forfeited all right to by his sin. We are told the wages of sin, that which we earn, is death. What is life? When we consider the question, it's usually at certain stages in our life. For the rest of the time, we tend to take it for granted. We tend to think about life at the birth of a child. We marvel at the miracle of life as we're praying for Hannah Slater's child. And the mystery and the, and the wonder of that child being formed in the mother's womb or we think of life when someone close to us dies. When their life on this earth is ended. And we either think of that in, in terms of joy, if we knew that they were in Christ, or in terms of sorrow, if we knew that they were not. At times we think of life, and maybe we think of life even more deeply when we ourselves come close to losing it. And we are faced with our own mortality. I know that we frequently pray for those who we know are close to death or experiencing what is perhaps a terminal illness. We pray that the Lord might open their eyes to the meaning of life, to the imminence of their death and the meaning of that event. But as I said, most of the rest of the time we tend to take it for granted. We don't, we don't obsess on life, nor should we. We recognize it to be the gift of God, but I think there are times when we should ponder the meaning of life in the context of the gospel. Because when we do think of life, we do tend to think of it as bound by this temporal world. In other words, the, the type of life we tend to think of is biological. The life that is formed in the womb, the life when it is ended, that is laid in the grave. The life when we are ill or someone close to us is ill, 
that we are in danger of losing. But it seems to me, and I think it is well, as well to you as you read the Scriptures, there's more to life than just this life. There's much more to the word and to the concept life than just the time from conception to death. There's more to it than just biology. We live in an age in which science is looked to for the answers to many things. To some people, men like Stephen Hawking, science is looked to for the answers to all things. And if you hadn't heard, he, he did finally come out and say that because of science we have no need of God. Thank you, Stephen Hawking. But with this environment of science, Christian apologetics, I think, have kind of caught up playing the music of the opponent, fighting the battle on the field and with the tactics of the opponent. So, for example, science is looking for the origin of life. Where did life begin? But from a biblical perspective and even from a philosophical perspective, there can be no origin of life. There can be a source of life, but there cannot be a beginning of life. Even science has shown us that life does not come from non-life. And that which is does not come from that which is not. And this is what the Bible teaches us. So while we spend our time trying to prove the origin of life in science, we in the church should be simply saying, that's the wrong question. There is no origin of life. Science tries to tell us that in the beginning there was simple life. That's a wonderful phrase. Simple life. There is no such thing as simple life. Life is, is complex. It's inscrutable. It's incomprehensible. It's not simple. The life of a single cell is beyond our understanding as to, as to how it came to be. But again, when we, when we get into these discussions and these arguments and we write our books, we are again being bound by this temporal world and life as it is biologically, rather than life as it is biblically, life as it is divinely. In other words, life as it is. This biological life being only a part of it. We can recognize scales or a hierarchy of life. We recognize that animal life is higher than plant life. We recognize, hopefully, that human life is higher than animal life. Although, if you were to listen to the news, you'd wonder. An angelic life, which we cannot even begin to understand. We tend to consider angelic life to be higher than human. I would submit to you from Scripture that that may not be the case. It may be that the highest form of created life, in fact, I would go to say that it is the highest form of created life, is that of man. And in particularly, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. If we are to understand that man and what his death means, then I think we need to understand life theologically rather than biologically. Listen to what the Scripture has to say in just a few places with regard to life. 
It begins for us as humans with Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives. And man became a living soul. That's a literal translation. We, we tend to memorize it, that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. But the word life there is plural. And just as we're told in Hebrews that God is the father of spirits, here we are told that his breath is the breath of lives. The breath of living, we might say. So we understand that life comes from God. And that our being is inanimate and insensate without the breath of lives coming from God. John 14, verse 6 is another very familiar passage, and one that deals directly with Jesus Christ as his own self-attestation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now we know that the remaining part of that passage is key to the gospel. And no man comes to the Father but through me. But tonight I want to focus on what Jesus has to say about himself. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. To Martha, to Mary, excuse me, he would say at the raising of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Hebrews chapter 12, furthermore, the author writes, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? That's a passage parallel to this one in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Should we not rather submit ourselves to the Father of spirits? As Moses is saying to the children of Israel, Love the Lord your God, obey the Lord your God, and live. John chapter 1, verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And finally, John 17, verse 3, the high priestly prayer, and this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Can these passages be reasonably limited to biological existence? Or do they contain something much more and much deeper? When we read that He is the way, the truth, and the life, when we read that in Him was life, and that life was the light of men, surely this cannot be limited to just biological life. That the meaning of life in truth and in its fullness is something much deeper than just the life we have from the cradle to the grave. It's also more than just being. Plants are, animals are. They have being. And so we say they have life, they're living. Some people talk to their plants. I hope they don't talk back. But we have something different in us. Mankind has shown, not only in his religion, but in his philosophy, that he has in his mind a conception of life 
that transcends his own biological years. He has a history or he has an interest and sometimes even a religious devotion to his ancestry. In his mind, his life is connected with those who went before. And we have an interest in those who will come after. And oftentimes we make provision. We understand that we also have a hereafter and wish to make provision for that as well. That is the essence of religion, or at least one major part of it. And that is the reality, the knowledge that God has sent eternity in the heart of every man. Though most men, sadly, find only error when they look at that, look into their heart. God has revealed to us the way. He has revealed to us the truth. He's revealed to us the life. And so we, we need to understand life. All life is derived from Him who is life in Himself. This is why I say there's no origin of life. There can be no origin of life. Life had to be there for any life to come from it. Because if life was not eternally present, then no life could come to be. Life cannot simply happen. And so there is no origin of life. There is a source of life. There is one who is life in himself, the self-existent one. That is God. The desire to live, which all men possess, the desire to live finds both its source and its goal in God. We have been created in his image, and he is the one who has breathed into man the breath of lives, making him a living soul. And so man inherently, innately, desires to live. That's his source, and its goal is God. Though many men do not know that. Knowing God, they have denied him and refused to worship him. But if these things are true... If, death, if, if life is derived from God, if the desire to live finds its source and its goal in God, then death is not merely the cessation of biological functions. Death is the furthest possible conscious distance a being can be from God. Death is not separation from God, for God is omnipresent. Death is, it's, it's even hard to find words to describe it, death is separation from the knowledge and the enjoyment of God who is life. And this is why we believe the scripture teaches that death the death of the damned is eternal. That there will be no annihilation of their souls. But those who die out of Christ will live in death forever. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. They will exist for all eternity, separated from the love of God, and the life of God, which is in Jesus Christ. 
This is the mystery and the power of the gospel. Jesus said, he who will gain his life must lose it. But what can a sinner gain seeing he has already forfeited his life in sin? So a man comes to us, a Galilean rabbi, and he says to us, if you would gain your life, you must lose it. And yet I have already forfeited all claim to life in my sin. What can I gain if I die? I merely pay the wage of my sin. And then I continue to pay that wage. For my sin is infinite. The religions of the world cannot answer this question. What can a sinner give for his soul? They have no power, these religions, because they cannot give life. Anselm once said about a false teaching, he said, you have not dealt out adequately with sin. And if you consider the religions of the pagans and even the other monotheistic religions of Judaism and Islam, the same can be said of them. You have not dealt adequately with sin. You have not answered the question, what can a man give for his soul? Seeing that he has already forfeited that soul through his own sin. But what if one who is himself life dies? What then? Will death, will the death of the one who is life negate and conquer life? I tend to think that Satan thought it might. As he sought the life of the Son of God, I tend to, I tend to think that he somehow convinced himself, and obviously this is speculation, and believe me, I have no desire to get into the mind of the devil, but as we consider what it is that he was doing, I think it's fairly obvious he didn't fully understand the ramifications of what was about to happen. And perhaps he held out hope in his own perverted way that by killing the prince of life, death would triumph over life. But it was the other way around. That when the power of an indestructible life and the one who is life in himself willingly gave himself up to death, we read that death is swallowed up in victory. It, it's a mental exercise that I occupy myself with sometimes, but not too often, or I'd never get any work done. To try to contemplate what happened in the heavenlies when Jesus died? What, what took place in the angelic realm? What took place in the heavens of the angels and of the demons? What took place in the, in the philosophical world where life and death were struggling against each other, when the one who is himself essential life, I am the life, died. 
We know that he was in the tomb three days. And there is much conjecture from Scripture as to what occurred during those three days. I believe that it was the fulfillment of Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 12 when he said to the Pharisees and the scribes who claimed that he cast out demons by the prince of demons, he said, how can a strong man's house be plundered unless the strong man himself be bound? I believe that when Jesus died, that is what he did. He bound the strong man, the devil. He took from him the keys of death. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 that in his dying, he defeated the power of the one who had the power of death. But it seems to me that death itself, and not just the devil, death itself was destroyed. Because it attempted, and this is how I envision it, it attempted to encompass and to wrap itself around the one who is life. When a man dies, oftentimes that death, as it were, overtakes his body, beginning at his extremities and moving up until he is without biological life. He is dead. Death has, as it were, encompassed him. The psalmist speaks of death as opening its gaping mouth and swallowing man. And so this, this image of death as a voracious appetite, seeking to consume life, is one that is, that is poetically with man in the scripture and in his own writings outside the Bible. Death is insatiable. And it tried to devour life itself. But the beauty of the gospel and the power of the gospel is that the event of death attempting to devour life was ordained by God himself. We learned this morning in this morning's message, we were reminded that Jesus set his face as flint to Jerusalem to die. He said to his disciples, shall I let this cup pass from me? But it was for this purpose I came into the world. And as he grew in his own awareness as the Son of Man, that he was also the Son of God, the Lord of glory, the one whom Abraham longed to see, and the one who is life in himself. He went to that death willingly. He took that death and, as it were, embraced it. And in embracing it, he destroyed it. This is the mystery and the power of a seed dying and yet producing life. The analogy that Paul gives us. The mystery of a, and the power of eternal, essential life willingly submitting to death in order to render death powerless over all for whom life died. And so we read in Hebrews chapter 2 that in his death, he destroyed the one who had the power of death, that he might deliver those who through fear of death 
were subject to slavery all their lives. That's us. And he has given us that deliverance, the death of death and the death of Christ, that we might live for whom Christ died. Let us pray. Father, we can only praise you for of ourselves and our own sin we know ourselves to be worthy only of death and of your eternal wrath. And we know that no man can give a price for his own soul, much less the soul of another. For we have forfeited life in our sin. And so, Father, we praise you that you have made a way. And not only that you have made a way, that you yourself are that way. That our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, became man and took on our form of life, that in it he might defeat death forever. And so, Father, we pray that we might rejoice in that life, and not as dying men, but as men who know that in Christ we live, and that our death is gain, as the Apostle once said. Father, I do pray that these thoughts might joy our hearts, knowing that death has been defeated and the strong man bound. And we pray that your gospel might go forth from every pulpit in this community and throughout the world, that you might bring in those daily who are being saved, those for whom Christ died, and those for whom death has been destroyed. For we ask these things in His most glorious name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please rise for the benediction this evening from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 13. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.